this is a special weekend, getting to honor the graduates. I, that's why I asked Drew to read about washing feet, so that they might know what lies ahead. Actually, uh, I asked Drew to read that passage, because it's really not about washing feet. Uh, it's about being a servant. And that's what Jesus says in that last verse, in that 15th verse. He says, you know, I, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Today we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a servant. And we're going to do so by looking at one chapter in the Old Testament But before we turn there, what I want us to do is kind of lay a foundation, if we may, from the New Testament. There's a great story in Matthew chapter uh, 20. I love it because two two of Jesus' disciples, they go to their mother and they convince their mother to talk to Jesus to ask Jesus that when you come into your kingdom, and they're talking about worldly Jewish kingdom, when you come into your kingdom, let my two boys, one sit on the right, one sit on the left, let them have the position of power and authority next to your throne. Jesus you can kind of imagine, look at it. And he goes, uh, well, first of all, that's really not mine to give. But more importantly, that's what the Gentiles do. That's what the heathens do. They look for power. They look for the opportunity to have a position of authority And Jesus said, it must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And the emphasis when Jesus uses this particular Greek word that we translate servant, the emphasis is on the work to be done, not on the position. He uses a word that means uh, to be a fetcher of goods, to be a waiter, to, to help out, to have a voluntary role. It's not the position of being a, a slave that was born in and was under ownership. Okay, And then Peter, he uses the same Greek word in 1 Peter 4.10 when he tells us, to serve one another. Again, out of a heart voluntary position. Now, Paul, he changes it a little bit. In Galatians chapter 5, he adds something to what Peter says, and he says, through love, we are to serve. And here he uses a different Greek word. He uses a word that is often translated 
bond slave, doulos. It's a word that means that you're a slave. You're owned. You have no choice. You're obligated to do this. He says, out of love, be a slave to one another. And I think the reason he used that word is because he first uses the word love, agape love, the highest kind of love, the God kind of love. And see, when we love with that God kind of love, we not only are driven to voluntarily serve, but somehow that love compels us to be servants. And Jesus said in John 15, love one another. Agape, love one another. And then Jesus goes on to say, no greater love has any man ever witnessed, could ever know than the love that compels a man, a person to lay down his life for his friends. Drew mentioned Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 forward. This is the greatest picture of love, not only in the entire Bible, but in the entire world. For you see, God himself came as a man to serve and to love. Now what's interesting in this Philippians 2 passage, it's a doxology that Paul included in his letter. And it begins with this. Paul says, have this attitude in yourself. See, he's drawing us in. This isn't just about Jesus and what he did. No, you and I can never live up to that standard. We're we're not the Son of God in that respect. We're not sinless. But he says, listen, I want you to understand. I want you to see something. You are to have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, the thing to be held on to, the thing to be protected. And Paul goes on to say, and therefore he emptied himself. He voluntarily, Jesus, let go of his prerogatives as the Son of God as a creator of all things, as God incarnate. He emptied himself and he took the form of a bond servant, a doulos, a bond servant, and was born as a man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what it looks like. Be a servant. And that's a beautiful picture. And you may wonder why I would go to the Old Testament for us today to look at what it is to have a servant's heart. What it is to be be concerned about the things of God and the people of God. And the reason we're going to look at the Old Testament is because I... I think that it's true that 
what we are so often told in the New Testament, we are shown in the Old. And there's a beautiful chapter and a beautiful picture of a man that has the quality and the traits. And I'm going to do something today. I'm going to show you seven qualities right now on the slide. I want you to see these qualities up front. That way, as we study the Scripture together, you can see if I've overreached or if maybe you might find a quality that I did not pick up on. Okay, But these are the qualities I find in this first chapter of Nehemiah. And by the way, I'm going to ask you to turn to Nehemiah in a minute. And if you're not quite sure where it is and you don't have an electronic device, go to Psalms and then turn left. You'll find it, okay? Here are some qualities and traits I find in the first chapter of Nehemiah. These are the qualities that a servant of God will have. Now, it's not an inclusive list. And there will be some qualities that you'll find in your life that are stronger than others. But this will give us an idea and we can kind of look at them and think about Do they speak to us? Number one, a servant inquires about the things of God. Number two, a servant listens to what God has to say. Thirdly, a servant is concerned over the needs of God's people. Next, a servant prays for the people of God. A servant identifies with God's people who are hurting, even as Jesus identified with our sinful state by taking our sins on Him. A servant stands on the promises of God on behalf of God's people, and a servant takes action to serve God's people. Those are the seven things. You got them right up front. Now let's see how they flow in this first chapter of Nehemiah. What we're going to do today is we're just simply going to read this chapter and talk about it together. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakilah. Now it happened in the month of Kisviv, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Haniah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. That's the first thing I see here. It's in verse 2. Note the words, I asked them. As soon as Nehemiah's brother and some other men had returned to where Nehemiah lived, which is in Susa, which is about 150 miles east of Babylon, it's the Persian capital during the winter time. That's where Nehemiah was. As soon as his brothers returned, we find that he immediately asked them about the Jews living in Judah. A servant wants to know 
what's going on with God's people. They have an interest. So he asked them. And what makes this all the more amazing? Nehemiah had never been to Judah. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He'd never been to the temple. He had never worshipped or sacrificed at the altar. Nehemiah, the book, was written around 450 B.C., about 150 years prior to the writing of this, the Jews had been taken captive at, by, by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, and they lived under that tyranny for years and years until Persia, the king, his name was Cyrus, came in, defeated Babylon, and now the Jews were captives in Persia. This is where we find it. This is why he was in Susa. He had only known a life of being a captive, a foreigner. He was not in the land of his family. His parents probably were not in Judah. Only his grandparents. He's the third generation. And yet, he's interested in the things of God and the people of God because God is moving on his heart. I think of what we just saw about the young people graduating and what they are doing and I cannot help but think that many of them, if not all of them, feel a moving of God on their life right now to take the path they're taking. I think that God had been moving on Nehemiah's heart even before Nehemiah knew it. So we go on. So he asked them. We, he asked them about the people in Judah. And another thing that's amazing about this, Nehemiah, the reason he's in Susa, he actually works for the king, King Artaxerxes. He has a very prominent position there, a very favorite position. Later, at the very end, we read what he is. It says, I was a cupbearer to the king. What, what does that mean? It simply means that he had authority in the king's castle. He oversaw the serving of food and the serving of wine because the king did not want to be poisoned. And so Nehemiah's job was to oversee this and then Nehemiah would stand next to the king as, served, as food was served and wine was poured and he would actually take and eat from the king's plate and drink from the king's chalice to prove that there was nothing poisonous inside the food. He not only got the king's food and wine, he got to stand next to the king. He got to talk with the king as we as shown in chapter 2. He has a very prominent position. And then verse 3. It says, after he inquired about them, verse 3 says, And they said to me, Nehemiah, listen. He listened with his ears and he listened with his heart. Verse 4, as you'll see in a minute, says, As soon as I heard 
these words. See, he really focused. In fact, in chapter 2, chapter 2, he quotes some of the very words that his brother says to him. Look, he says, And they said to me, The remnant there in Judah, in the province, who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The gates. There was 12 gates. They have been destroyed by fire. This is a tragedy, people. See, Cyrus, just as prophesied in, in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, had allowed the Jews to return that wanted to go. In two different groups, about 50,000 Jews went back to Jerusalem. And they began the building. And they began building the temple. And they were going to reestablish Jerusalem as the capital for the Jewish people. But they became so despondent, so despaired, all the Gentiles around them kept coming against them. And this tells you what the Gentiles did. You see, walls can fall down naturally, but for 12 gates to be burned down, that means they had set fire to them. And without the gates, there is no protection for the Jewish people living inside that walled city. This is a tragedy. Those are the words he later tells his boss, King Artaxerxes, that the gates, the gates of my city have been destroyed by fire. And he remembers what his brother says. It will be 30 days because there's a new date in chapter 2. It will be 30 days later when he speaks to the king. And he knows the exact words. Don't you love it when somebody asks you a question about how you're doing and they actually listen? They actually care? The quality of a godly servant is first, they inquire about the things of God, and secondly, they listen when they are told. Verse 4 through 7 now. As soon, not later, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's the third thing. Nehemiah feels the pain. He's concerned about what he just heard. He says, I sat down and wept. Man, that's heartfelt. That's heartfelt. He says, I did so for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He does this for 30 days. He not only prays, but he fasts. And remember, 
He's entitled to eat the king's food. So except for the dinners wherein the king was present, he went without quality food because he wanted to get close to God. He wanted to know what God's thoughts were. He wanted to be in tune with the living God. So, he says, I prayed before the God of heaven in verse 5, and I said, he prays. This is an essential. This is a non-negotiable. If you are concerned about the things of God and the people of God, and you want to be a servant to others, you have to be willing to pray on their behalf. He says, Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He begins his prayer with adoration. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray? Jesus said, okay, this is Matthew chapter 6. He said, okay, pray in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven. Now the Jews did not say our Father. And they certainly didn't say my Father. You see, this is, the fatherhood is something that the New Testament Christians get to experience through the sacrifice of Christ. We're told in chapter 8 of Romans that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been adopted into the family and that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are His children and we cry out, Abba, Father. Nehemiah could not address God in that respect, but he could give him adoration. Jesus goes on and says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. That's honoring him. That's giving him adoration. That's saying, your name is above all name. It's sanctified. It's sacred. It is set aside among all names. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He says, the great and awesome God. He knows whom he is speaking to. He says, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Thirty days, thirty nights. Persistent prayer. Just like Jesus said. Knock. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Don't stop. Don't give up. If you're serving someone and your heart's been moved for that person uh, and that person doesn't respond or God doesn't do exactly what you're praying for, first of all, you're not alone in this in any means, but don't give up. I'm so thankful for that young lady that gave her testimony. Drew and others did not give up. They prayed day and night. 
He says he prayed day and night for the people of Israel. Your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Now, let me, let me just stop there. Here's what's happening. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is replacing the tears with prayer. Tears are good, but they need to be replaced with heartfelt prayers. And he's, so he is praying, and then he says, I am confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. He's identifying now. He understands that, yes, the, people, the, the Jewish people disobeyed God. They turned away from God. And therefore, God allowed them, 150 years previously, to be taken as captives into a foreign land. He understands that. But he also understands that he and his father's house are equal to be blamed. Because since they have been in Babylon, since they have been in Persia, what have they done? Have they not also ignored God? Have they not also assimilated into a society which worshiped many, many gods? Have they not allowed their gods in Persia to become the Jewish God? They too had sinned. They too had turned their backs on what God had told them to do. He's not saying it's just them. It's a us thing. He's identifying, and we have to identify when we're praying for the body, when we're praying for the people. When we have a missionary that comes up here and, and pours his heart out because of where, they, where he lives or she lives and, and says, the people just, just don't understand. And we've got to identify with that. Because even though we live right here in America where, where freedom is open, so many people, so many people, they don't understand what God has done for them. So Nehemiah identifies with the people and he confesses. He confesses that he and his father's house has sinned. He says in verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Oh, people, confession is so rich for the soul. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we, when we err, when we turn ourselves away from God, away from His commandments. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my word. You'll keep my commandments. When we've done that, and we've all done it, He 
people through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the means of forgiveness. And we have the means of bringing ourselves back into that right relationship. It's called repenting. It's called genuinely turning away from that which is separating you from God and turning towards God with confession. God, I have sinned. Forgive me. King David said this. He says, against you, God, and only you have I sinned. Because God, the Father, He's the one that declares that which is holy and that which is not. Not us. And Nehemiah understands that. So he confesses his sins. Now, now, he is ready. And let's look at 8 through 10. I love this. I told you that prayer is a non-negotiable. If you really care about God, the things of God, you will pray for the people of God, for people who are brought into your life that have a need. But look how he does it. Nehemiah stands on the promises of God. He actually says, remember God, God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Indeed, he did. But God You also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Twice in that passage that Nehemiah quotes back to God, God's own words, He reminds God he's the God of the I will. Yes, he's the great I am, but he's also the God of the I will. It's amazing what God will do when we stand on his promises. I can think of few things more valuable for a servant to do than to go to God's word When somebody has presented a need to you, when you have felt the calling of God to address an issue of life, there is few things I can think of more valuable than going to God's Word and finding out exactly God's heart on that matter. If someone comes to you and says that they are living in fear... Daily, they can hardly leave their home. They are fearful of everything. Yes, pray for them. But also go to God's Word, for there's about 160 times that God says, Fear not, I am with you. So you begin to take that word on behalf of that person, and and you say to God, God, your word says to fear not, And I'm asking you to help this person not to live in fear every day. 
That's a powerful prayer. It's God's Word back to them. Somebody says to you, listen, I'm living with great anxiety. And who doesn't in this day and age, right? And they say to you, I'm living with great anxiety. And all of a sudden, you go over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and you see this verse. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And you not only begin to pray that for the person, but maybe the opportunity will come. And you can say, can I share this verse with you? Can I share this verse so that you can be praying this for yourself and you can try to start living it out? See, Nehemiah is standing on the Word of God. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place, Judah, that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There's about 50,000 people there. They, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah knows God's word and promises. You might be saying, well, I'm not as comfortable knowing God's word. Well, sometimes that takes time, no doubt. Two things you can do. Find a brother or a sister and let them come alongside of you as you come alongside of the other. Secondly, for about a dollar and fifty cents, you can buy a little book. It's called God's Promises. It's even in alphabetical order to make it easy. You can start looking through that and find some promises and then take that book, those verses, look into the Bible and make sure you have it in context. Nehemiah knows God's Word or promises. Nehemiah believes God will keep His Word. That's why he calls it to remembrance. Okay? He says, you're a God that keeps your promises. We know that. And I see this in your Word. This is no different than we see in the book of Daniel and other books of the Bible where, where the saints of God call out to God and say, you said. You said 70 years we would be kept in captivity. And God calls Cyrus, the king of Persia, and says, release them. I keep my promises. Thirdly, Nehemiah believes in praying God's word over the problem. And again, as I said before, I think that is such a great foundation to do so, it keeps you from wavering. It keeps you on on the right course with God. Let Him provide you the promise that you are to stand on. Those are six of them. Now, now we're going to turn to the seventh. And it's interesting because up to this point, we're going to go to verse 11, but up to this point, no action's been taken, Right? We talk about everything to do with the heart of a servant. 
Now, look at verse 11 if we can. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants. He knows he's not alone in this. He's probably gotten other people to pray with him over this issue. But he says, of your servants who delight to fear your name, now listen, and give success to your servant, singular, to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is Artaxerxes. He's the king, the most powerful individual in Persia. And he's also Nehemiah's boss. Nehemiah is saying, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Because if we were going into chapter 2, what we would see is that Nehemiah is going to go right before Artaxerxes and with tears and trembling, he's going to say to the king, my heart is broken. My heart is broken over the people of Judah. Because the gates are burned down with fire. He's going to say, King, give me a leave of absence. It may be a while before I can return, but give me a leave of absence. And let me go to Judah. And let me build a wall. And let me restore the gates. And by the way, King, I need you to send a, a troop of soldiers with me so that nothing happens to me on the way. Oh, and one more thing. I need you to supply the material. <laughs> Man, when we stand before God, when we have prayed about the things of God, when we are doing what God has called us, we have a boldness in our life. And he goes before the king and he says, it's time for me to take action. I can't just sit back any longer. I need to go. I don't want to ruin the story. Artaxerxes says yes. Go. Build the wall. Put the gates back up. Let's pray. I'm actually trembling before you, Lord, because there are so many needs. We have pages on Tuesday nights in the prayer room that we can pray over people that have hurts and needs. And, and oh Lord, we pray that the God of mercy, the God of all grace, will meet Pray God. Pray God that each and every person in this room can truly become concerned about the things of God and the people of God. And that you will move in their life. Maybe it's only for one person. Maybe it's only for one thing. But God, they might give up their comfort and their leisure. God, I have come before you and said to you, 
I love the soft light. It's so nice, so easy. But Lord, if it means to be uncomfortable for a season, just so that my heart will be stirred, let it be so. Let it be so. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I believe you all have fellowship at this very time. Thank you all for being here. God bless you. If anybody needs prayer, I'll be up here. We'll get somebody up else up here if you need some. Thank you very much. God bless you.